We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 2019's Ready or Not, directed by Matt Bettinelli Open and Tyler Gillett, and written by Guy Busick and R. Christopher Murphy. Here's a clip. I can't believe that in half an hour I will be a part of the Ladomus Gaming Dynasty Empire. Uh, Dominion, we prefer Dominion. I honestly can't wait to be a part of your family. There's just one more thing. And then you are officially part of the family. So at midnight, you have to play a game. Why? It's just something we do when someone new joins the family. A game. What game? Hide and seek? Are we really going to play that? Well, the rules are simple. You can hide anywhere we then try to find you so there's no way for me to win right and stay hidden till dawn <laughs> no thank you good luck what the hell is this how old is this thing i know you're in here Jesus, you shot the maid. Does she look like she's wearing a giant white wedding dress? Emily? <gasps> Holy shit! I had to play along so that I can get you out. It's insane. They think they have to kill you before sunrise. Or something very bad will happen to the family. If we don't find her and perform the ritual, we're all dead. Found her. All right, that was a clip from Ready or Not. Uh, quick premise for this movie this is about a woman who is marrying into a very wealthy family she's a little bit nervous about it and one of this family's traditions is that on the night of the wedding at midnight they play a game and one of these games could possibly be deadly turns out this one is um all right, so joining me as always to talk about this, these movies <laughs> and who picked this movie is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? I actually watched the world premiere of this movie. Yeah, I was pretty jealous about that because that was the year that I wanted to go to Fantasia and couldn't make it. And this was one of the movies that I wanted to see through the digital Fantasia, but they weren't offering this one digitally. So I never got to see this one until this week. Uh, joining us always also to talk about it is Simon Howell. Yo, I was not at the world premiere. 
that's unfortunate. Were you going to go to Fantasia that year or not? I can't remember. 2019. I don't think so. I think it was the previous year was the last one. I took a few weeks. I took a few years off and then I, uh, and then I visited again for the first time after a few years, but no, I don't believe so. Okay. Was this your first time seeing this movie like me this week or had you already seen it? That oh, it sure was. It was, I, it was one of those films that there's a lot of uh, recent mainstream horror films that people have, that have good word of mouth, good reception that I have been meaning to come up with excuses to watch. And, uh, finally I got a perfect one for ready or not, which is this podcast right now, the one you're listening to. That's right. Uh, all right. So Rick, uh, well, we should mention right away, by the way, this will be a spoiler cast. We're going to try to maybe avoid it for a little while if you want to sort of get in and see if this is interesting. But obviously, we're going to be talking about everything in this movie. Um, Rick, so why did you pick Ready or Not? Well, first of all, I think it makes a really, really good Valentine's Day movie. Like, it's not a love story. It's a horror comedy, but it is about a bride. She just was married into a rich family. Personally, I think it's a cautionary tale. This is why you don't get married, especially to rich people. Um, <laughs> we reviewed The Hunt a few weeks ago, and I made the comparisons to the two movies during the podcast, and I was kind of like shocked that you both have not yet seen, had, hadn't yet seen Ready or Not at the time. And like The Hunt, it is sort of a spinoff, I guess, of The Most Dangerous Game mixed with Clue. But the thing is... Ready or not, unlike all of the iterations of The Most Dangerous Game, this is an original property. It's an original movie with an original concept. It's not an indie film because it was made by Fox Searchlight Pictures, but it was made by a small team, Radio Silence, best known for, I guess, their segment in VHS. Um, it's like their previous work. It's actually shot in Canada. Um Simon, you might recognize the actual the actual mansion in the in the in the movie, because it's a famous mansion in Toronto, which you can actually go visit. All that said, I think that this is just like a really good movie. Um, what really struck me about it when I watched the world premiere at Fan at the Fantasia Film Festival in 2019, I believe, is there was a trailer and a poster that was released ahead of the world premiere, which is usually rare because usually when you go into a world premiere you don't really know what to expect they they usually release just a few stills and that's about it but in this case there was an actual full-blown like two-minute trailer which sort of spoiled what the movie is about but at the same time i was a little taken back by how bloody the movie was and i personally love movies that make fun of rich people <laughs> and um this movie reminded me of society remember that movie simon mm-hmm Yes, I thought about society watching this as well. Yeah, so look, it's, I think, a really great B-movie. So it's a B-movie made by a big studio, but regardless, it's a great B-movie. It has a terrific performance from the lead actress, Samara Weaving. I think it actually would make a great double feature with The Hunt, and that's maybe the best compliment I can give the movie because I'm a huge fan of The Hunt and I like The Hunt just a bit better. Like I found my, I found that I enjoyed watching The Hunt a second time more so than watching this movie a second time because I feel like this movie has flaws. But overall, it's just it's just like a really fun time. Yeah, I would say it, it is a great sort of popcorn horror flick. Um, it is fun. I, I definitely enjoy The Hunt a little bit better. Uh, I think Betty Gilpin's performance is just way weirder. Uh, than anything in this film. So it's just a little more interesting for me. But, uh, and I think there's some scripting flaws that 
we'll get into later, like stuff that I was just, I wanted to correct so badly or just make little slight adjustments here and there. But other, outside of that, it, uh, it is a movie that's having fun and there are some nice gory moments that are, you know, entertaining, even though they'd also avoid score in certain scenes, strangely, um, where I thought maybe it wouldn't, but, uh, but still, it, it, it's got a lot of good stuff. Just just quickly, the one big difference between this movie and The Hunt is this movie takes place, I would say, within, what, like five, six hours of her wedding night, and it all takes place in one location. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm surprised, uh, maybe it reminded you guys of this, too, but this is clearly going for a get-out sort of vibe, too. Not uh, not the vibe. I shouldn't say that. It's not going for a get-out vibe, but it's going for, like, a... a the same kind of social message, I think, that, you know, in a, in a different way. It's it's not a racial message, but it is going after wealthy elitists um, and, and what they think and how they use commoners, I should say, how they can step over them. Yeah, the wealthy family, by the way, for anyone who has not yet seen the movie and listened to the podcast, they made their fortune through board games and games. And the name of the actual family is Le Domas, but it's supposed to be poking fun at the family because it sounds like dumbass. Um, <laughs> so Simon, what's your general impressions of this? Um, I mean, my general impression is Ricky, you saw this in the right context at the right time in the right circumstance, because I can absolutely imagine at a world premiere surrounded by a Fantasia audience, um, cheering on every kill. This movie would have been extremely fun. Um, unfortunately, watching it at home uh, in my underwear by myself uh, was not as fun. Um, there were things about it that I liked. Uh, I mean, clearly, Samara Weaving is the the best reason to watch this. Um, uh, at the end of the day, I think I had a, a I think I'm basically on the same page as Patrick, but I think overall, I, it sounds like I liked it a little less. The uh, yeah, pretty much everything wrong with this movie is at a script level. I mean, technically, it look it looks pretty good. Practical effects, again, always love some some lovely splattery effects. Has a few really great moments, a few really great uh, beats. And every once in a while, they really give Samara Weaving a chance to show off some personality, um, which is, which I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into her and the performance and what works and all that. But um, yeah, there's, uh, it, in a way, it's one, it's a movie that is fun to watch because it's, the, the setup is so simple and the execution is so, so much a set of a choice, a set of choices, let's say. And it was fun for me to watch because I kept thinking as, as, uh, as you did, Patrick, you know, if, if I were developing this, what direction would I have gone? And personally, the direction I, I would have gone a lot of the time was quite different. I guess the overall way I would frame it is I think that the destination was correct, but the journey was a little bit tortured to get there. Um, if that makes sense. So the thing is, when you go watch a movie at Fantasia, there's something about the festival and the audience that you tend to like the movie more than you should because the overall experience is just so fun. Oh, yeah. We did this with all, so many movies. <laughs> yes. But with Ready or Not, people walked in thinking they would hate the movie because of the way it was marketed. We all expected a typical Hollywood thriller, not even a horror film. This 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 movie, by the way, is owned by Disney. Just think about that. So yeah. it's an original film, an original concept. Yes, yes, there are tons of issues with the actual screenplay, which we can talk about shortly. But overall, like I do think it's a pretty 
fun movie. And that's the thing. Like, I'm going to use the word fun. And in my review, because I actually reviewed a movie for the, for the website, like, way back in 2019, I ended by saying I do not want to oversell Ready or Not. Because I knew with all of the buzz and hype coming out of Fantasia, people would be let down watching a movie based on some of the reviews that I read at the time, which praised the movie as, like, the next big thing. Like, the greatest horror film in, like, the past five years type thing. Which I think was a little overblown. But this is a great movie to watch on Valentine's Day. It's a great movie to watch on any day. It makes a great double feature with the movie like The Hunt. And specifically because of her performance. I mean, yes, maybe the performance in The Hunt is a bit better because she's She's directed to act a little bit more odd. She's it's off- weirder. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure say it's better, but it's weirder, so it was more interesting to me. Well, I. I uh... But the thing about her character in this movie, she plays Grace. That's the character's name. So Grace. What I like about Grace is I find that every single decision that she makes seems logical and realistic. Like the simplest thing, like actually putting on a pair of sneakers and removing your high heels and or not walking around them bare feet. The way she picks up the elephant gun and the way it takes her like about what, like 5, 10, 15 minutes to actually figure out how to use it. And then she realizes afterwards that it's not actually a real gun. Like there's there's things about this film where it is over the top and it doesn't take itself seriously based on the characters like the villains specifically in this, this crazy rich family. But at the same time, her, her actions, her reactions to other people's actions and the decisions that she makes, I find is more believable than what we see in most horror films. Yeah, I would say that she does. She makes logical choices. I would probably argue that everybody else in the movie doesn't (laughs) or it doesn't follow through with what their characters are set up to be. And that's where I found script problems to be probably the most glaring. Specifically, I would guess I would say with the uh, with the Adam Brody character. Well, the biggest problem is if you're going to marry her, Grace, and you are in love with her and you don't want anything bad to happen to her. Did you have to bring her to meet your family and have her play this game knowing that she could very well draw the card? In this case, she draws the card, which is hide and seek. And hide and seek is the only bad card because it's the only deadly game in which they actually have to kill the bride. This is what I thought could have been explored more in the movie. There is some lore here and it could have helped enrich the characters just a little bit. I think it is interesting that you could be in love with this person, but also afraid to die. And the idea is that if he doesn't do this, he could be dead. Um, that I think could have been explored a little more fully with all the characters instead of maybe being so glib about it sometimes. I think that the problem isn't so much, um, you know, the Ad- Adam Brody plays the uh, the conflicted brother who appears to be evil, but maybe isn't and has second second guesses, you know, second guesses the whole thing. There's some of this with, the, with her husband as well. I think the problem with that part of the script, uh, the good part is that it has that ambiguity about is this curse real or not? Uh, and that, to me, was the most fun part of the script. And I think they actually did a pretty good job with that. And I, uh, part part of me was like, oh, maybe in flashbacks they should have shown, like, relatives dying mysteriously. And, like, it, but but then I thought, eh, maybe better to leave that as a mystery. And I do think that that plays off nicely later. I think the problem is the film expects you to care to some extent about the choices the the family makes. And... I think the biggest problem with the movie and the script is that we spend too much time with the family telling each other the story of their family, things they I'm sure would already know, you know, talking about how one is one, one character is the good son and will come back to us. 
And, uh, and you know, all that would have been fine shunted into a single scene if these are just dumb villains that I'm not supposed to care about. But they kept distracting from Samara Weaving, who should be the heart of the movie. And at the end of the day, we know more about the two brothers and their background and their relationship than we know about her. And that's a, a fatal flaw, I think. There's a huge flaw, a huge plot hole in the movie. In the movie, at one point in time, someone says it's only happened one time in which someone actually picked the card hide-and-seek, which we see in the cold open. Because the movie opens in the past, and someone gets killed on their wedding day, right? So they say it only happened one time. And the problem with the characters, the villains, the family, the rich family, is they themselves don't seem to believe in the curse, except for one person. And so it's hard to buy into their their motivation and determination and passion to actually go and kill and hunt grace if they themselves don't seem to believe in the actual curse they're conflicted that's the problem with the movie they treat this hunt as 100 normal i mean there's a little slight bits of dialogue where they where they maybe have some conflict but most of the time they're all in on this they have no problem doing this whatsoever which is weird if it only happened once in the past when the two yeah. the two supporting the, the two main supporting characters being the two siblings of brothers uh one of which is the actual groom they were what like 10 11 years old at the time maybe younger so like that's the major flaw in the movie I found that to be pretty problematic and I want to go back to what Simon was saying about how the family distracts from Samara weaving so that's the thing. Like Grace is not a great character. It's a good performance, but she has she gives it everything she has, but she's not really fleshed out much at all. It's the Adam Bro Adam Brody's Daniel, and uh, I can't remember the actor who plays Alex. Mark O'Brien. Mark O'Brien. Yeah. Uh, their relationship is by far and away the most interesting thing. It's the only thing that is an audience. Uh, like as a viewer that I could latch onto as being kind of grounded and real. Um, and that's what I wanted. Maybe that's why I wanted those characters fleshed out more, but you're right. It destroys the, the premise of the movie, which is I'm supposed to be caring about the person more who runs for her is running for her life. But in the end, what I was most invested in was where's Adam Brody going to go in, in all of this. He seems like the only character. He's the one that has the arc and nobody else really well i guess mark o'brien's alex has an arc too it's just a kind of a reverse arc that's all well the thing about adam brody's character daniel is he's the wild card he's great in the movie like i'm a huge fan of adam brody not just because of the oc i think everything he's done even after the oc is like fantastic he does not get enough credit as an actor i think he's amazing mark o'brien is also really good in this movie and i like his turn towards the end when he actually he realizes that she will never ever stay with him regardless of how this turns out at this point in time it's over their relationship their marriage is over and then he turns on her and he becomes the ultimate villain of the movie so i love their performances and you're you're right because the only thing we really know about grace is i guess she's a common person like she's not rich or anything and she was adopted she was adopted or she had foster parents exactly but samara weaving's amazing like she was also in the babysitter and she carried that entire film and I feel like I saw her in another movie. I just can't, I can't figure out which movie it was. Was it maybe the, uh, that movie, uh, Revenge or Rampage or whatever it's called? With, oh, right. Uh, no. Yeah. I didn't see it. She's in the movie with, uh, Mayhem, Mayhem with the guy Stephen from, Young. Uh, yeah. Stephen Young. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't yeah. seen that movie. She's yet. also, she's, she's definitely carving out a little niche as this 
this kind of character. And she's very good at it. So mm-hmm. someone, one of you's mentioned the look of the film and I'm not sold on the look of the film. I, okay. I like the mansion. Like I said, it's an actual mansion that you can visit in Toronto. If you ever go to Toronto, look it up. So the setting is awesome. But the thing about the cinematography is there's a lot of handheld camera work, which is fine. I guess, given the fact that the whole entire film is a, a cat and mouse chase and it's like an actual hunt. I liked the color palette, but I felt it was very dark. And I felt the same way watching it at the cinema, at Fantasia, way back in 2019 on the big screen. And once again, renting it on uh, Crave. So I don't know if it's just me, but I felt that it was a little too dark in many scenes. But I do like the color palette. Yeah, I thought it was a little murky. Um, but overall, it didn't distract me. It, it, that, that was maybe just within the first, you know five, 10 minutes of being in the mansion that I thought that, and then I got used to it pretty fast. So it wasn't overly so, uh, there is, you know, a lot of, a lot of earthy tones in this. I'm not really sure what they were going for, but it would, it, it does make the mansion seem old and kind of musty. And maybe that's a good thing. I definitely could have used, um, more of like, this isn't really about the visual. This is, we kept talking about the mansion. And so I wanted to talk about that. I mean, obviously it's a great location, I, I could have used even more use of the location. You know, we do get uh, her hiding in the dumbwaiter uh, right when the game begins. But I felt like after that, we didn't, um, they didn't do as much with it as they could have. They don't explore the, the servants' hallways very much. They only have that one scene where they go inside yeah. them. That's the last time we ever see, and she never uses them again. And it so... should be like a central, I mean, just metaphorically speaking, it should be like the central tool in her tool shed. Yeah, you'd almost think that they'd want to write that in. That's how she outsmarts them, right? Because this is about a you know lower class defeating upper class. And maybe by using all the tools at the lower class disposal, the stuff that the upper class never even thinks about, like these yeah. little servants' hallways. Like some of them may it. not even know the servants' halls exist, let alone exactly. what the layout is. And so she outsmarts them that way. Um, those are things that could have been done. You're right. And th- there's, there are little weird trips outside the mansion that I'm not really... Again, there are little script flaws where they, they're able to find her in this massive woods just because they had the script demanded it. Um, characters don't make it. There's a goat. <laughs> they have goats for some reason. I uh, I really didn't need that scene of Nat Faxon doing a voice cameo as the uh, car assistance asshole. Oh. Uh, th- which added five minutes to the movie for no good reason. <laughs> it did, and it was it was terribly... It was that was that. Come on, that would never. Also, that would never happen. You've got somebody screaming, saying they're running for their life. You're talking about the voice in the car. I thought you were talking about the car yeah. that drives away when she's trying to get help, and she starts. She's like, "What the hell's wrong with all you rich people?" That scene, I love that scene. Like when she's trying to get, because you know what? That would actually happen in real life. Like you're trying Absolutely. to get help. You're on the side of the road. You look all like beat up, and you're you're covered in blood. Well, and also the the fact that the fact that they're speeding away, blaring EDM is just it's it's cheap, but it's perfect. Yeah. Did you know that one of the producers of the movie is James Vanderbilt? I was going to bring this up, actually. If you know about the family, please, like, let us, like, educate us. Okay, well, first of all, there's way more Vanderbilts than you think there are, because they don't all, they're not all called Vanderbilt. Yeah, like Anderson Cooper, Timothy Oliphant. Anderson Cooper is a goddamn Vanderbilt. Yeah, I was going to bring up both of those people, so you're reading my mind. Um, well, and the funniest joke in the movie is that, uh, James Vanderbilt plays the ghost of the, of their, of their long dead rich patriarch, 
uh, which is, you know, that that was that was to me one of the few signs that there was some wit kicking around in the making of this movie. But uh, unfortunately, most of that didn't get to the actual humor of the movie. <laughs> um, yeah, it, as far as the screenplay goes, it could have definitely used a couple of rounds of polish to really get some zingers in there. But there are some still some very funny scenes. And I think the payoff at the end does help you walk away with an overall positive feeling because that, that zany ending is is fun that's the best zinger in the movie the final shot i'm glad they had the guts to do to the do it to the little kids too <laughs> uh, but not on screen not, not on, on screen, screen though i know that's and that's why i was saying like curiously this movie would like wimp out sometimes sometimes but yeah i mean that's my overall feeling about this movie is that it's kind of toothless like i i feel like it's and it, it, it threat there's like a couple of scenes and we can get this when we get to our questions at the end, I can get into this. There's a couple of scenes where it threatens to really become a movie that is like, that is quite nasty and quite, um, and quite pointed. And that, but it always seems to swerve into a safer direction uh, after a couple of minutes. Uh, and even the, I don't know, I feel like if you've got a class conflict horror movie, you really need some, some decent, uh, I think you, you, you need some, some decent, sort of crude class analysis to come out of your characters. And here we have someone literally just say, I hate rich people. It's like, okay, that's the kind of movie, like that's the level of sophistication we're dealing with here, which is fine. It's just, you know, you can do more. You could. I have a feeling that at some point they knew they had a, a potential moneymaker on their hands. And so they wanted to make sure that they maximized that as much as possible. <laughs> and so they softened whatever, you know, dark nasty ideas that the filmmakers may have had i'd love to see what the original script had for for a lot of these things and to see whether or not that was toned down in order for a wide release um i think it might have been different if fox searchlight hadn't decided to distribute this you know yeah it it actually now that you're now that you're saying that it does kind of feel like maybe originally it was like a nastier movie and then Mm -hmm. over time it got refined into something uh a little bit more uh, palatable to a wide audience, but I mean, I'm just guessing here. It could just be that they 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 couldn't make up their minds. There are remnants in it that suggest that. I think her punching that kid in the face is a remnant of that because I don't think it fit with. I didn't think she was going to do it. To tell you the truth, at that point, I had thought that the movie had maybe been, you know, that it was just playing it too safe, and then she does at least punch the kid in the face. That's not something you normally see in a movie. Uh, I think I feel like that got left over, and of course, the kids getting theirs in the end. Even though it's off screen, I, I bet that was written. I bet that was not written. The kids run out the door. <laughs> it happens off screen. Hmm. I'm sure that was done. I kind of feel like the family had to have an over-the-top goofy performance because of the studio making the movie. Like if they were just really awful, evil, rich people and this movie was dark and twisted, I don't think the studio would greenlight the project especially when you have scenes of children being murdered. So it's yeah. it's one it's like asshole children but still children. Right, but it's you know when you think of Fox Search like pictures like that studio from my understanding no longer exists because Disney basically bought out Fox and so that branch or whatever you call it is no longer active but they produce some really good original film so it's kind of like sad at the same time because this feels like something bloomhouse would have done uh, only they would oh, have in a hundred percent a hundred percent this feels like uh you know it's funny how now it's so easy to categorize horror films not by genre but by studio mm-hmm. like 
is this a Blumhouse film or is this an A24 film? And this is definitely much more, this is like a low budget Blumhouse movie, basically. Yeah, they might have upped the humor a little bit more and maybe upped the gore a little bit more. I was going to say, there's a couple of scenes where I thought that there'd be more gore, like the maid that's stuck in the dumbwaiter. And it, she just curiously gets cut away from, she gets sort of crushed by the dumbwaiter, I guess. Oh, thank you for mentioning that, by the way, because I know this is a small thing, but this is a real pet peeve of mine. You're making a movie about, like, essentially a class war horror movie, and somehow the help gets all the good deaths? Like, come on. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Wait, wait, you didn't like that? I love that. I thought that was a great ongoing running joke because they had to save the family for the big final reveal, the climax, the twist at the end. No, yeah. I, 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 I get that. But like, I don't know. I felt like all the deaths of, of the rich people were like pretty boring, except for, of course, getting exploded at the end, which she doesn't even do. It's just something that happens. Yeah, uh, she I doesn't don't know. achieve that because I mean that's basically she's just saved by the grace of the satanic demon, or whatever. The the, the she's you know, saved by the, a rich person, the benefactor <laughs> of the family. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, the only person who did not, I mean, I don't know. I feel like the butler could have been a better death. In fact, I'm having a hard time remembering how he actually went. Oh, it was the car she, crash. Yeah, she kicked him and choked him a bit. Which didn't you feel that that? that scene in the car was very similar to the scene in the car in the hunt. Like the way she leans back and kicks him is exactly like the way it's staged in the hunt. Yeah. Just not oh. as well done, not as cleverly done. Well, and this is another key difference between the hunt and this movie. And this is worth talking about in the hunt, even though Betty Gilpin is not like a huge physical presence, you totally believed that she could do what she was doing mm -hmm. in every scene. I think this movie has a problem where Samara Weaving is so tiny and the staging is just not what it is. Like the, the action choreography, the stunt work. Wait, you, you're contradicting yourself right now. You were just complaining that she didn't really like go out and kill them in really creative ways. And now you're complaining that she is very tiny. So therefore she can't actually, she doesn't actually kill anybody. She's basically, basically trying to survive. The entire no, time, and I like still, the way, but I like there's... the way she gets beaten, and 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 you know, like the way she cuts herself in the fence, and and the way she gets uh, shot in the hand, like she gets battered and bruised and beaten and shot, and she's full of blood. I think that's what I mean about her. I think it's very realistic, actually. I I think the the well, eh, I think that the some of the injury stuff is great. I agree with you that the 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 decisions that she makes are like the correct amount of sensible and like not too smart. Um, I just mean there's scenes of her in physical altercations with other people. For instance, that butler who's about twice her size, where you know she does she does manage to physically overpower him after, you know, after she, supposedly no, being knocked no, out. No, she does not. She does not overpower him. She hits him over the head with the kettle, the kettle of boiling hot water. Later on, he tackles her out in the middle of of uh, you know like a little a, a meadow, and she gets the best of him she ends up uh she knocks his gun out of the way I, I that particular fight scene could have been done much better uh because his weight alone so she knocks the gun out of his hand the tranquilizer gun and then she manages to take a uh, like a strip of cloth from her dress and wrap it around his neck and my first thought was all he has to do is lean forward and she would completely fly off of her feet any struggle put up by him whatsoever who probably weighs twice as much as her means that she's going to lose her footing and lose her hold. But they, the way they shoot it is if she's strong enough to pin down this probably 200 and some odd pound man, 
who's not hurt badly. He's not hurt at all, actually, at this point. Um, I mean, he got his thing in the face, but he's fine physically otherwise. And all it's one of those, just one of those things where it's like, if you compare it to The Hunt, you're right. I believe Betty Gilpin in every single scene because she approaches, they approach those scenes very tact, uh, tactically. There's a huge difference between these two movies. This movie has a supernatural element to it. So therefore, as viewers, we do have to suspend our disbelief. If that occurred throughout the whole entire film, I would say, okay, yeah, I would have a problem with it, but it happened one time. But what I'm trying to say here is for the majority of the film, she's always one step ahead of the audience. She's making the right call, the right decision, and it feels believable for the majority of the film, despite the villains, the characters in a supernatural setting. Yes, so we should probably steer back towards the positive as well. Like, uh, she does, and I like the decisions that she makes. She does feel like she's actually trying to survive a situation and making reasonably smart decisions. One of the best things I, I love, there was a, her, her husband gets handcuffed to the bed, trying to save her, uh, and so the rest of the family decides to take him out of commission, simply, like, make sure that he can't help anymore by handcuffing him to the bed. They don't want to kill him because they believe he's going to be the patriarch of the family someday. Uh, and she takes off. She actually escapes from the house. He, get, he manages to get the doors unlocked, and she takes off running. A lesser movie would have had her run back to try to help him. They didn't do that. Uh, they let her keep running and try to escape. And that was great, because that is what I want, want to see my smart protagonist do in a situation like that. Knowing that he'll be fine, his family doesn't intend to kill him at all. You don't need to go save him just because he's handcuffed. He's not going to die. Uh, you know, well in theory. Betty Gilpin's character, Crystal, in The Hunt, we are not entirely sure what her background is, but it's imp implied that she was in the military. She has training, for example, on how to use yeah. a rifle or a machine gun or a knife or martial arts, hand-to-hand -hand combat. She's just a bride. She's an orphan who married into a rich family who probably used to work at a coffee shop. <laughs> you know what I mean? So... Well, and that's why that's why her strangling that butler makes no sense. She has no training. She wouldn't know what how to be how to balance herself properly to do that. Um, so that's why scenes like that are kind of. But they don't. They do not have too many of those. You're right. Most of the time, it is her just trying to escape. And uh, I'm glad they didn't have her fire the elephant gun because in real life that would have knocked her right back on her feet. I feel like. If you were to give the screenplay to most filmmakers out there, they would just have her grab an axe, grab the gun, grab a, a grenade. Like she would be, she would turn into Rambo, basically. And in this movie, like I can't remember her actually killing anyone. No, she yeah, uh, she beat someone to death with the box. Oh, oh, right. But but that but that was important because that was a crucial turning point in the film. Because when she beats the mom to death with the um, the box, whatever you call it, that's when. Mark O'Brien's character, Alex, who's the groom, he basically turns on her because she therefore becomes the killer. She becomes a bad person, and it's easy for him, and it's easy for the screenplay writers and the directors to justify his turn all of a sudden as a character becoming the ultimate bad guy and now trying to kill her. So I think that was needed. You know, yeah, I, and it's completely uh, believable. I wonder, did, Patrick, I feel like you and I are kind of on the same wavelength on some of these things. So I wonder if you had this thought, too. It's if you've seen a movie before, you know that the husband is going to break bad at some point yeah. because the, you know, this is not one of those movies that is going to shock you with its twists. Uh, it does manage to keep you guessing about the curse, which I did really like. And I will I will praise that for sure. Um, but, you know, the husband's going to break bad. It's just like what is going to cause it. And when 
when when Alex comes back and Daniel's been shot in the neck or whatever and he can't talk, I was sure that what they were going to do with that was that was <laughs> going to be the trigger because she was going to assume that Grace that, did it. That Grace did it. Yes, I thought the exact same thing. Yes, that uh, was and that would have. And I wonder if they considered doing that because that could have shaved some more time off this movie. <laughs> because his relationship with Daniel was much more powerful and solid than his relationship with his mother. And so I understand what they did there with the mother. Like, oh, she she beat him. And now he can kind of, I don't know, maybe she's now struck out against his family. And so now he has to feel on their side. I don't know. Part of it was he was a coward, too. And he really, the whole reason he took her there is because he didn't want to die. I mean, you can call him a coward from the very beginning. He was willing to to risk sacrificing somebody's life to, to save his own. So here's me playing devil's advocate. I thought the exact same thing, but when watching the movie for the first time and the second time, because I completely forgot how it ended, I thought when Daniel died, it's Daniel, right? Adam Brody. Yeah. So I yep. thought that, she, that um, Mark O'Brien's character, the husband, the groom, I thought that he would, exactly what you said. I thought that he would think that Grace killed Daniel and therefore he would turn on Grace because they were really close as siblings and not, still are close to this day. Like they are like best friends and siblings, right? So I thought the exact same thing, but because they didn't do it, I liked the fact, I liked the decision for them not to do it because it was sort of like a fake out because it's what I, the uh, the viewer, and I think most viewers would expect because that's the relationship that, that's built from the start of the movie. So... I think it could go both ways. Like, I think it could work, but I, I still prefer it this way. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's an, one of those little things where I'm not sure how well it would have worked had they actually cultivated that relationship just a little bit more. But it was fun for me seeing Daniel's... I knew that Daniel was right away from the very beginning. He was the kid that that not, you know notified everybody in the beginning that, oh, she's in, or he's in here, right? He got a guy killed essentially in the very beginning of the movie and you knew that was going to stick with them for the entire movie and that he was eventually going to turn good but I, what was fun for me was watching the little clever ways in which they sort of suggested ambiguity like when they're out in the woods and he's got a gun on her and he says he likes her but he's got to turn her in and he's the weak one and everything like that and i thought that doesn't make any sense for his character because at this point it seemed like he's already turned good except that the dad was behind hiding behind a tree and i thought Ah, that's very clever. He knew that his dad was there, and he's trying to have the best of both worlds, essentially. He wants her to escape, but he also doesn't want to, like, have his family kill him, or I don't know what it was, but there are all these little things that every time he would go sort of bad, and or it seemed like he was reverting back to that, that kid who ratted out that guy at the beginning, um, there were these little wrinkles involved that made you think that he he was trying to dance between these two worlds, all right, he was on a, he was on a tightrope and he didn't want to fall over to either side. He was playing the game a little bit too close. Like, and in the end, we can talk about like how he actually saves her his one time, which really was a, a he didn't really save her from anything ultimately. No, but but the senior the the scene you just mentioned where the dad or whoever it is is hiding behind a tree. He knew he was hiding behind a tree, so he had to. That's right. He had to play along because he was trying to find a way to actually save her because that guy would have just maybe shot him. Maybe. And I, I like I like that. I like that they gave him they make him seem like he's, you know, he's saying all this stuff about how I'm the weak one. And he might be speaking the truth, but at the same time he's also putting on a performance for the for the day. I, I just don't understand how we're forty minutes into the movie and we have not yet mentioned Aunt Helen, who by the way, starred well, I guess did she star in a movie cube? She was in the movie cube. I guess she's a star. We've been talking about the movie cube for weeks and weeks now. So I just wanted to point out that Aunt <laughs> Helen is in the movie cube. 
Uh, well, yeah, the entire cast, basically, except for Samara Weaving, Adam Brody, and Andy McDowell, all Canadian character actors. Um, and it's funny because I'm looking through the cast, and it's like looking through the cast of two different movies. Because, like, Christian Brune plays uh, Fitch and was also played kind of a similar role on Orphan Black, kind of like the comic relief. Um, I mean, he's he's really good at that sort of thing, and he's Wait, fun and funny here. Who are we talking about? Fitch, the, oh, uh, right, the, the right. heavier yeah. set, goofy guy, the roly poly uh, husband, roly poly uh, guy who who yeah. Google's in I think the movie's best joke, uh, packs with the devil, real or bullshit. <laughs> yeah, that was good. <laughs> that was actually the rare Google search joke that I actually laughed at. Um, him and um, uh, Elise Levesque, who plays like the the you know the ditzy cokehead sibling. Uh, so he and her and a couple of and the aunt. And a couple other characters feel like they're in a different movie, um, a much goofier yeah, movie. They 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 felt like they were in the movie The Adams Family. The Adams yes. Family playing the game of Clue. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, and I don't think any of the individual performances are bad. Like, I mean, like clearly Andy McDowell, Christian Bruin, these actors are having a fucking blast. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think it, it's the coherence that's uh, that's the problem. And I, I think separately from that, there's like. A, it's not exactly a plot hole, but it's a it's a it's a script choice that relates to the family that I just don't understand, which is that pretty early on it's established they play this game all the time and you know, like you said Ricky, they don't think of it as a serious thing cuz no one ever pulls the hide and seek card. Uh, but they know that in that in their family, you know, they do they they kill to sustain themselves. And as Adam Pro, as Adam Brody points out, uh, you know, they do all deserve to die. And but as soon as we, you know, as soon as we know they're basically doing human sacrifice, we also all agree they do deserve to die. So it's strange that they that even after we know that the film still kind of tries to keep us invested in them as a family. They try to use the children. There's even a line where she's like, but my children don't deserve to die. I don't know if this is another plot hole, but the thing is, aren't the kids considered like new family members? So do they not have to play a game or is it just the people you marry? Well, I imagine they they don't want to. I think it's just the people that marry into the family. I don't know. The pact is never really great, like explained all that well. I don't. Think. Yeah. I was well, and the funny thing that. is, there's like eight scenes of people explaining the pact, and yet I and yet every time I was like, wait, though, <laughs> I, still I don't understand questions. it. <laughs> I will this say is the problem. Scene... Oh, go ahead. This is the problem with having a movie about a, a pact with the devil: is you need to either explain nothing or explain everything. Right. You can either just say it's a pact with the devil, and that's fine. Or, but they they try to go into a little bit. Of and it doesn't make any sense to me now. I was going to say the thing with the kids. What that's that's a scene that I actually really like because uh, she says my kids don't deserve to die. But very soon afterwards, they the the kids talk about hunting, and Adam Brody gives that look like he knows that those kids also deserve to die. Like his whole family. There's a moment where he thinks maybe maybe there are some innocence in all of this until the kids actually speak, and they're just little assholes as well uh, who have no problem. <laughs> murdering people to... <laughs> oh, yeah. in terms of the family so i think they're all just really bad people so even if you're you marry into the family and you do not believe in the curse you're just going to go along with it because you want all the money that comes with it and they establish that most of the people that married into the family are terrible terrible people even daniel's mom says that grace is the only bride they've ever brought home that she actually likes and is a decent person yeah I mean, Daniel's wife makes it very clear. Like, she's willing to do anything to keep that lifestyle. So, 
I mean, that right away, that, that sums it up. And they all are. They're all willing to do that. It would have been interesting had they gone into maybe a more, I, I don't want to say self-defense route, because, of course, obviously, if they don't do these things, they also will die. And, of course, it's a very tricky thing. You know, if you're going to die and you have to kill, and that killing another person will prevent you from dying, most societies forgive that to a certain extent. But uh, in some way, or at least in some contexts, it would have been interesting if they had gone into the morality of that a little bit more. I would like to think that this movie takes place in the same universe as society. I have I have one one last one last qualm with this whole setup, and then I'm going to stop talking. Couldn't you just not fucking marry her? That just was like, brought up, except they, that he claimed that she wanted to get married and that she pressured her into it. That he would have, been, and she even says to the mother that he would have been perfectly happy living in sin, but um, but she wanted to get married. And he didn't. Yeah, he obviously didn't want she to. She wasn't working with all her. the information. Yeah, <laughs> Simon. She needed a family. She wanted a family. She did not want to live in sin. Okay. Yes. I have a family. I'm not married. You might. You might not agree with the movie's decision that that is her motive, but at least they give a motive. Like that makes sense. There's plot holes in the movie, but the plot hole has something to do with. Like, there's no plot hole when it comes to their decision to get married because we also like. There's a bunch of cards that they can pull. Like what, fifty-two yes. cards? We're not entirely sure. So. The odds of her pulling that card are, you know, one in a million type thing. Then they go through how the other spouses have got chess and old maid and everything like that. So they, he he probably thought like, okay, I don't need to say anything because the odds are really, really not in, you know, the odds are in her favor. Except that at yeah. some point, you might have to explain to her why you're going to be killing somebody yeah, later no, on I'm, in life. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. If if to get married, you have to play a game of Russian roulette where it's one bullet in 52 chambers, you wouldn't do that. <laughs> no. Simon, every time you get married, you play a game of Russian roulette, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we should probably take yeah. a break. Uh, when we come back... We're going to get into some more positive stuff when we get back. I feel like we were a little too negative on this. It's, it's an easy movie to pick apart, but uh, but it actually is an entertaining movie as well, I thought, anyway. Um, all right, here's another clip from Ready or Not. Whenever the Ludomasses are presented with a new addition to the family, we place a blank playing card into the box. Our initiate then has the privilege of drawing the card, and Mr. LaBelle will tell us which game to play. I got chess. I got old maid. Seriously, what the fuck is old maid? Fitch. <laughs> <laughs> so I just take out the card? My dear? It is your turn. <laughs> what does it say, girl? <laughs> it says hide and seek. Are we really going to play that? We are back to the portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. This is going to allow us, I think, to dig a little deeper into some of the things that we really liked about this movie. We'll try to stay a little more positive. Yes, there will be some more negative things, but uh, I think, look, all I can say is that overall, I actually did enjoy the movie. I just found a lot of it that I would like to change. Um, we talked a little bit about that during the 
break. But, Simon, we're going to go right to you on this. We're going to start Ooh. positive. What is your favorite scene from Ready or Not? Okay. 54 minutes into this movie, I wrote it down. 54 minutes in, we get that scene in, what is it, like, the barn? Yes. Or what is that structure? It houses uh, that is goats. Not, right, there's goats in there. And um, Gray Storm's in there, is followed by a child, uh, who then shoots her in the hand, and uh, it's extremely graphic. <laughs> and then she, I don't, I, th- I don't quite understand how this happened, uh, but then she plunges into uh, an attic full of dusty skeletons that with fucking arrows in them and shit. And I have to imagine, Ricky, I wasn't there with your audience, but I have to imagine that was that had to have been the best audience moment other than the ending for that film because that was when I thought, I literally wrote this down, 54 minutes in, this movie just leveled up because that scene was so intense and over the top and way more just sort of visceral than everything that had come before that I thought, here we fucking go. Uh, and ultimately the rest of the movie didn't really live up to that, but that scene is fantastic. The way that scene is directed is is a, a great example of building suspense and letting your audience know what is about to happen and teasing them because they showed a close-up of the nail maybe like three or four or five times. We know mm-hmm. her hand was shot right, right through, the, like the bullet went right through the middle of her palm. And as she's climbing the ladder, we know she's going to have to put her hand through the nail. So I love that scene too. I think it's a great way to, it's not really building suspense. It's just teasing the audience. And at the screening at the Fantasia Film Festival, people lost their minds. <laughs> it is the best scene in the movie. That was going to be my my choice um, as far as that goes. Or at least it's my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah, I love the nail, the nail through the hand and having to pull that out. That's well, where you really I'm... got to see her kind of like her in her full acting force too. You got to see every single emotion running across from the confrontation with the kid, where she almost feels like she has an ally. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I personally, I'm just a sucker for movies that put the protagonist through the ringer, mm-hmm. and uh, that is really the only scene where that fully happens. I think in this movie, there is also the scene in which she has to pass through the fence. Oh, yeah, that's true. But, yeah, the staging of that wasn't as exciting to me. Um, the uh, the uh, Speaking of staging, in that scene, I, I also loved the, um, the, the way that, like, not only is she put through the ringer, but I love feats of endurance in horror movies. And I have to say, climbing up a, a, a horrible old ladder that doesn't go quite all the way up to where you're trying to go with one hand while the other one's got a big hole in it. Um, and, and there's a nail waiting for you at the top. That's a pretty good feat of endurance. That's a, that's, you know, hats off to them for that. And the little callbacks, like the air in that cellar, like the arrows in the body, that's, that's obviously the man that we watch get shot at the beginning of the movie. And it's just a kind of a little nice reminder that this family has been doing this for years. So it, it, it also solidifies them as the ghouls that they really are. There's physical evidence now. Instead of just hearing about this stuff happening, we we see the results of it. So everything about that scene is just really, really well done. Uh, Rick, what about you? Uh, is there another scene? Was that your favorite scene, or is there another scene you've got? No, I think that's mind? the best scene, but it's not my favorite scene. My, my favorite scene is the scene in which the entire family just explodes. And it's mostly because of when I saw it at the Fantasia Film Festival, the audience just went crazy and it's also because 
when watching a movie for the first time and the second time, because again, for whatever reason, I completely forgot how the movie ended. I I struggled with the movie despite enjoying my time with the movie because I struggled with the screenplay and the characters and the idea that they actually believe in this curse. But you know what I mean? Like there wasn't enough enough evidence for me to actually believe in them believing in the curse. And so I think if you remove that scene from the movie, this movie falls apart because it, there there would be too many plot holes and when the movie ends in a credits roll, you just wouldn't believe in anyone's like motivations to actually go and hunt this poor girl. Like you needed that scene. You needed the supernatural element to justify everyone's actions. So it plays an important role in the movie, but it's also just a great scene because everybody explodes. And, and you know, when she starts laughing, her hysterical laugh, like she just goes hysterical, right? That pretty much mirrored the audience reaction at the Fantasia film festival. Like people could just not stop laughing. Cause I think you can sense it. You can sort of like sense, like I remember sensing how everyone was a little unsure if they liked the movie or not because of this major plot hole. I don't know. It was what everybody needed. It was like that, that sense of relief. It's like, okay, it all makes sense. This is fantastic. The really fun part of the ending to me is that I think with just a few tweaks, if they felt like it, there's a version of this movie where there is no curse that I think works great. Like, I loved the, the that I mean obviously it wouldn't be this movie I agree it wouldn't work for their setup but I kind of love that beat of oh we think that this is actually not real so they're trying to figure out well okay so if there's no curse what do we do and and there's that beat of well I guess we just still have to kill her of course which you I, wouldn't have to do right because she's yeah. seen you do all these things so yeah and I, I did I love I mean as much as the, the the exploding was cathartic I thought they did justice to that beat yeah i'm not going to spoil society for anyone who hasn't seen it but at the end there is this really over-the-top incredibly gory climax that involves all of these rich people and it's not similar to ready or not but thematically it's similar yeah i can i can see what you mean society by the way is a great candidate for a remake i'm amazed that hasn't happened yet i i think patrick and i were talking about this i think if you have any interest in screenwriting or like film storytelling uh, one of the most instructive and like fun things you can do is watch movies that have flaws because I, I've thought of flaws that have inspired entire concepts for screenplays. You know, it's uh, picking at things can actually be quite fun if you're a certain type of brain. Mm -hmm. It shoots you off into all sorts of different directions. This is a great movie for that because there's so many moments where if you are constantly thinking about that stuff, you may go in different directions. Um all right, I'm going to give uh, Elisa a shout out to the kitchen scene with the butler. I do like the staging of that one. I thought that was a fairly suspenseful scene. I thought it was pretty well done. I like the click of the gun. Uh, I liked his reaction to it. The entire time I was waiting for them to do something extremely stupid in that scene, but it didn't really happen. Um, so I, I kind of, if we're, if I, if I can't pick any of those other those two scenes that you guys mentioned, that would be the one that I would go with because I was, uh, I was, I was digging the way they just sort of handled that. I liked when the movie slowed down to have those little set pieces um, mm -hmm. instead of the, the exposition stuff or the, the, just the running, the constant running around. So to have a, a little scene, her first sneaking was fun. Simon, if there was only one thing you could change about this movie, what would it be? Ooh, I can only change one thing. I forgot about the framing of this question. Yes. If I could only change one thing, I mean... I'm cheating here because this involves doing a family of things, but definitely 
more grace, less everyone else. That would be a tremendous help to this movie. Even if that, even if that meant making it a little longer, honestly, I think that would have uh, really deepened the movie. I, you know what I would do? It would be sort of an offshoot of what you were doing. I would beef up the, the, the relationship, the triangle relationship between um, Daniel, Alex, and Grace. And I would shove everybody else towards the background. The rest of the family doesn't matter as much. Their relationship, though, can mean something. Uh, and and I, I, it, it, it was implied that they kind of, those are the three that actually knew each other before this wedding. Because it's sort of implied that the rest of the family has barely even met Grace. Like, they don't even really know her. But but Daniel did know her. Because um, she talks about, you know, the, the drunk brother-in-law who hits on her occasionally. So I think he saw her outside of all of this, you know, while she and Alex were dating or whatever. I would have beefed up their relationship because I think that's the emotional one that pays off. And, yeah, I would have cast everybody else backwards. It's completely unimportant. Um, Rick, what about you? One thing. Well, I've already mentioned a huge plot hole. And you can fix it by removing one line of dialogue. There's no way it happened only one time. It must have happened plenty of times because here's the thing. Here's the plot hole. The plot hole is, in order for this family to know that the curse is actually a real thing... Someone had to die because they refused to partake in this ritual, this tradition. You see what I'm saying here? But mm -hmm. this line of dialogue says it only happened one time, and we saw it. We saw the cold open. We saw them actually kill these people. So who are these people that didn't partake in this tradition and played a game that ended up dying because of the quote-unquote curse? And if they did die, how is it that they still have family members? Because isn't the whole thing that everyone dies because at the end of the movie everybody explodes that's part of the family even the kids because she survives till dawn plot holes <laughs> doesn't make sense right <laughs> no it doesn't yeah i mean you could have a single flashback of like a family dinner uh that suddenly turns into a gory version of uh of that Monty Python sketch? No, no, no. Look, like... look, look. There's a simple way to fix this. Newspaper clippings. Have the camera pan. So-and-so had this weird death. So-and-so died. Rich asshole explodes. Yeah, the family curse. It's in the news. You know what I mean? Like, a simple thing that yeah, can explain it. Something. Something to do that to sort well, of shore of course, up that lore. Uh, the, tr the trouble there, there is that, that now you've just made Grace an idiot because she marries the family knowing they're cursed. Oh, <laughs> well, it's it, a lose-lose situation. They they had things sprinkled throughout. They were really trying hard to keep that curse, you know, a mystery and ambiguous whether or not they would actually be anything. And that's why they would have, you know, the dad occasionally say, remember the whatever, you know, whatever family and they all got killed. And somebody would say, oh, I thought that they died in a fire. And he would say, well, yeah, that's what the papers want you to think. That that was a, that was a great a way to explain that it's not just this rich family there are other rich families who had who made a deal with um mr labelle right yeah so there's a bunch of rich families who made a deal with mr labelle but because they didn't participate in the tradition those family members ended up dying that makes sense but the problem is again the rest of the characters don't know this like you shouldn't have one of your characters explaining this story because they're already supposed to believe that this is going to happen to them, which is why they actually pull out a gun and a crossbow and an axe and go hunting this poor girl. 
their motivation was a lot of it. And that's another reason, to, by the way, to shoot them towards the back. You could uh, go all out on, like, forget forget the lore kind of thing. Like, just accept this as fact, that this family has this weird tradition. And uh, and the, and you could make allusions like, oh, yeah, they believe they're going to die. The two brothers could have been just saying to her, like, yeah, they believe they're going to die. I don't know. There's nothing I can do to stop this. But they actually believe they're going to die. I love this movie, but the more we talk about it, the more I see the plot holes. So here's the thing. They're not supposed to even kill her. They're supposed to take her alive and sacrifice her, right? That's so, true. So then, why but do you have, have an axe weapon. and an elephant gun and the shotgun yeah. and like Cross what the hell's bones. going on here? All they're doing is murdering people left and right, and then they keep <laughs> saying multiple multiple lines of dialogue are are used in this movie to say the exact same thing. And one of those is this has never happened before. The mother says it at some point. The father says it at some point. Like people say this, this they repeat these same things over and over again. And one of them is you're not supposed to kill them. Shoot for the whatever. Shoot for the body. Where we have to keep them in alive. Don't shoot them in the face. Like they say this multiple times, as if we won't remember this rule, because I'm not sure they remember all of the rules some of the time. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I I think those are. Those are some pretty. They're not small changes. They're they could be major ones. I think maybe yours could Rick could be done with a line of dialogue yeah. to help the. I, 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 but. I think what I mean overall, Ricky, what what you're pointing out, and I think this is a lesson to all aspiring screenwriters. If you're going to make a movie that involves a curse where there's rules, uh, you know, be careful about that. You're it's uh it it is itself uh sort of a curse. People will say we're nitpicking, but I always say this on podcasts. In your movie, there's a universe, a world, and you establish the rules for that world, these characters, this story. So you have to follow your own rules, and they are not following their rules. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. they, they have to constantly remind themselves of what they're doing. That's what it sort of comes across as. And as a viewer, you don't want to be taken out of that. I'm fine like accepting that gremlins can't eat, eat after midnight, even though that is ridiculous. There's no like it's it's always yeah, after you don't you don't need else. a flashback to explain why gremlins can't eat after midnight but dude that's, yeah, that, that sounds like a silly example but it's a perfect example it's an easy example that anyone can 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 follow because if in the sequel they can eat after midnight you're breaking the rules and the lore of the movie yeah and even this gremlins 2 deals with the ridiculousness of that that premise but they make fun of it, but it doesn't really matter because they've made, they've created this world where at least everything is is consistent uh, in the actual movie. It doesn't matter whether it's realistic; it just matters that it's consistent in the movie. Folks, we're just the most fun people to watch movies with. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> I don't know. Like I, like you said, it is. It was fun watching this movie a lot of time to see the things I would have done differently, the choices we would have made. That can be fun. Um, yeah, I, I, it actually I, can. I didn't walk away from this movie with any negative feelings whatsoever. I no. just, just, I almost wanted to write a movie right after this. <laughs> yeah, pe people think of critics as like joy, like as, as killjoys, but I actually often take a lot of pleasure in in flaws. Mm -hmm. I find them super interesting. The thing is, it's when you're mean spirited or the critics that are more interested in making them sound intelligent than actually just discussing the movie that is what bugs people. Anyways, moving on. That's true. Yeah. Moving on. All right. I think I think we're going to know the answer to this one, but uh, I'm going to ask this for propriety's sake. Um, Simon, who's the MVP of Ready or Not? It's uh, Mara Weaving. Come on. <laughs> I mean, she is the one that is put through the ringer, essentially. She does have to carry the movie. 
I she could... literally she carries this movie kicking and screaming just like Betty Gilpin did with the hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Um I wish she had been given just slightly better a better character to work with. I feel like Gilpin was given some background or character that maybe the director or the writer told her about that allowed her to play things kind of strange. I don't know if that was her choice or if they really workshopped that character. I wish they would have done a little more with Grace and make her feel like she had a background. For instance, play up. You know, she came from obviously working class and she was, you know, she had foster parents. But I thought, for instance, when she grabbed the gun that she would know how to use guns, for instance, because maybe she came from a redneck family or something like that. Or maybe she's American. Exactly. We are all well trained. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to all the Americans. I love you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, if, if... Something like that, something where her blue collarness would have come in handy, just like Betty Gilpin's, like Rick, you said that it was implied that she was in the military. It was expressly stated. I mean, she said that she served. Um, something that she gets to use that. And I would have been nice to see Samara Weaving's character, to see Grace have something from her background that she could have used. But yeah, she she does the best. She she does great with everything that she's given. Um, Rick, what about you? What is your choice? I'm going to agree. She's clearly the MVP, not to make the podcast too long. I'm just going to also give a quick special mention to Adam Brody's character, Daniel. I think Adam Brody is the best in terms of the supporting cast. And Agreed. I was going to say the same. I at least wanted to mention him. He's the character with the internal conflict. Uh, nobody else has any, really. I mean, Alex, I, I, Alex is a little bit, but... Special shout out to Andy McDowell, who knows what movie she's in. Yes. Very delicious kind of performance as far as, you know, the evil yeah. queen I, I, sort of thing. I don't know if the movie knows what movie she's in, but she knows what movie she's in. <laughs> uh, all right. So this also could be a very short answer. Um, the Howard Hawks says we bring it up every time. Three great scenes and no bad ones. And we say great scenes and no bad ones. Um, I'm not sure there are any bad scenes, like out and out bad. I was thinking of that while I was watching the movie. It's hard to always tell what a bad scene is, too. Like, one that you would completely cut out. I think there were maybe a couple that are borderline, though. Uh, Simon, does this movie pass the Howard Hawks test for you? Uh, no. It has, I, I think we've already highlighted three quite good scenes, uh, but no bad ones? I don't think so. Um, there are so many scenes that could have been cut and the movie would lose nothing. Like, the third or fourth or fifth scene of family members explaining the lore to each other or um and then still not really clarifying them or but especially that scene with the driver assistance nat faxon not a good scene don't give your buddies cameos because you think it's funny it doesn't help the movie Mm -hmm. um rick what about you i think it has two great scenes but it does have a bad scene simon you just mentioned it but i do think that you know in a few years from now when you think of ready or not you will remember the scene in which everyone explodes and i think you will remember the scene in which she falls into the ditch and has to climb her way up the ladder those two scenes i mean would i call it iconic i don't know we'll see how people feel about the movie in 10 years from now but those two movies stand out and i will remember those two scenes but no it has a bad scene at least one yeah, I would also say when the driver attacks her out in the meadow, which was ridiculous that he found her in the first place, too. I, I 
kind of believe that that's a bad scene. Um, I, I'm going to say that I, I'm going to go with one great scene, and that is the barn scene. That is what I'm going to remember the most. I do really like, I think the explosion scene is a very good scene. But as far as what's going to burn stick out in my mind the most, I think I'll remember her putting her hand through that nail. That will be the image that 10, 15 years from now when somebody says ready or not, that's going to flash into my brain. I wanted to quickly mention, I just realized what that scene really reminds me of, which is it reminds me of the 2013 Evil Dead, which is underrated. It's different. And I think that's what people didn't like about it. It took a different tone. It wasn't Evil Dead 4. <laughs> that movie is do, that that movie is going to get a reassessment someday, maybe because of us. Stay tuned. <laughs> I would be up for that one. I, I just want to quickly say that the scene in which everyone explodes, the reason why I think it's so great, it's not because everyone explodes. It's because of her reaction and performance in that scene yes. when she just yeah. can't stop laughing. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, I get it. It's a, to me, it's a very good scene. I think I, I like the visceral qualities of the barn scene. That's what I'm going to remember the most. I, yeah. I may remember the explosion scene. We'll see. Somebody, this is the challenge to you guys. Remind explosion me of explosion scene. <laughs> by the way, one other last tiny great little thing about that scene. It's actually a good use of CGI blood and gore. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's it, that combination of that ridiculous effect and then everything being covered in like quote unquote real blood. Great. Perfect way to do that. Yeah. Uh, ideal. Cause obviously you can't, you can't have those moments happen without some CGI. So it, it's nice. Um, all right. So basically is there uh, well, we, we either ask, is there an audience for this movie going forward? And oh, what yeah. is that audience, I think this is a pretty easy one for the audience thing. Like why wouldn't anybody, first of all, it's a brand, it's, it's a pretty new movie still. But this is a perfect like B movie horror flick to watch with your friends once you can do that again, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you can. And, you know, as like the second of three like dumb horror movies you're watching in one night, this is perfect for that. Perfect. Yeah, good popcorn horror movie is what I would say. Just very light, breezy, easy, yeah. easy to digest. And the kind of movie you watch with your friends so that you can each, like, talk about what's happening. <laughs> like, it's not the kind of movie you sit quietly and respectfully, you know? <laughs> this, is a, this is a really, really fun movie. Despite the problems with the screenplay, I highly recommend the movie. I chose it, I love it, and it would make a great double feature with The Hunt. I was going to say, Ed, but watch The Hunt second. Um, because you don't want it by comparison. I'm not sure that it, it holds up as well. So make sure you watch this one first, then the hunt. I would say. Uh, also, I think you're right. This would be a fun Valentine's movie in a way. Um, it's kind of got that whole like maybe I shouldn't marry this person vibe going on because they might have horrible, horrible secrets. Gone Girl did that for me, so I don't. I don't need any more reminders. <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that. Um, Simon, I know you say you're not online. I'm oh, not online. Oh, that's not true anymore. Oh, I have a Letterboxd page. I oh. have a Letterboxd page. I'm on Letterboxd. Follow me on Letterboxd. There we go. All right. Well, I'm about to make my return. Give me about a month, and uh, all of a sudden, I'm going to find myself with a lot of free time on my hands, so I'm going to uh, be writing a lot more on GoomaStop.com. Um, Rick, where can we find the podcast? SortedCinema.com. It redirects you to the podcast page over on the website, and in each individual post, you will have all the links which redirect you to where you can listen to the podcast, which includes 
iTunes, Amazon, Podbean, Stitcher, Google, well, Google Play is no longer there. I think it's YouTube now. Anyways, it's everywhere. It's it's online, and it's, of course, it's on the website, sortedcinema.com. All right, that should do it for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to be back with a look at Brawl in Cell Block 99. We'll see you then. God damn it, Emily! I don't know what I'm doing! And today's video is called Getting to Know Your Crossbow. I forgot my gun. Why don't you just use mine? Mr. Lodomas, I just saw her running. Oh my god! You're just another sacrifice. Do you think this is a fucking game? Yes, hide and seek. Remember? He wanted to get married. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. For hide and seek. Run, run, run. Time to run and hide. Run, run, run. And now I'm going to find you scurry off into the darkness. Hurry, I'm behind you. Don't you speak. Hide and seek. Tiptoe to the cellar or crawl under your bed. Anywhere you fled, I am going to find you. Stay inside the shadows, all you girls and boys. The lobster in a pan You don't understand That I am going to find you Be still as a mountain And quiet as a mouse Cause any little sound And I will surely find you Tick, tick, tock Are you ready or not? Tick, tick, tock Listen to the clock Hasten off into the black Don't waste another heartbeat Don't you peek Come.